You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hi, it's Julie. Thanks for tuning in to Served Up, the podcast. As we all celebrate Pride Month around the world, I am so proud of my dear friend, Stephen Sheeta. Stephen open-heartedly shares his story, longing for love, discovering his sexuality, and courageously saving his husband and his life partner through COVID. Now, this is just a teaser, and we'll leave you wanting to know so much more about Stephen's journey. But rest assured, he's just completed his memoir, I Grew Up Poor, Ask My Butler. Now sit back, grab a Maker's Mark Manhattan, and get inspired. Steven, welcome to Served Up. Bridget and I are so excited to have you with us today. Likewise. Just so that our listeners get to know a little bit about you, I thought we'd just kick off and talk about your book, your memoir that you've been writing and working on. Oh, it's done, actually. Yeah, I wrote a memoir. You know, I was a writer, basically, in television news. What it really came down to was writing the story. I mean, you can have great information, but if you don't present it well, people kind of zone out or they turn the channel. So I've always been a writer. And when I stopped working or when I was retired, I didn't stop of my own volition. Um, I decided just to put it all down on paper because I had so many experiences and so many things that I found interesting, even to me and other people were saying, you know, you really should write. And I thought, God, I have this energy and this outlet. And so I just wrote it all down. And I talk about, well, I start with my family, which was bizarre in many ways. Um, I, I, I'm pitching, I'm starting to pitch it now, and I, I call it an amalgam of Rather Outspoken, Dan Rather's book, Running With Scissors, which is about a hilarious and horrific childhood, and Call Me By Your Name, which we all know because mm-hmm. I think I dealt a lot with, with my sexuality through my 40s, uh, mm-hmm. up until my 40s. And it just starts with my childhood. My father was just shy of 70 when I was born. My mother was 40. Um, My father was a bootlegger, fairly big time, put out of business by Al Capone. And I mean, keep in mind, I'm 65. My father was almost 70 when I was born. So it's a a short leap to the 19th century. His Mm -hmm. father was a renowned sommelier in Vienna, Mm -hmm. Austria. Renowned and Julie, you've been to my house. And I, in the living room, I've got all of these ornate diplomas, uh, certificates there with the Kaiser seal and such. It's all from Vienna, Austria, because he was so renowned. He worked for my great grandfather and he ran away with his employer's youngest daughter, my grandmother. And oh. he was, you know, a commoner and she wasn't, so it was very controversial. And they wound up in the United States. And then my mother was just a hillbilly who, who, apparently, who apparently had quite the body. And uh, 
actually you've been to our place in Miami and yep. she's on the wall and she's quite a showstopper back in the thirties. But anyway, and then I got into TV just very serendipitously and had a great career. That's unbelievable. I mean, it, you talk about your childhood and, and your family, like it's so normal, but I don't think it no, was it, right. It, I it mean. wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't normal. It was, I mean, my parents, when they wanted to go on a trip would put me in the hospital if they couldn't find a babysitter. Because you, it was back in the 60s, it was $50 a night to put someone in the hospital. And I remember my mother calling Dr. O'Brien and say, yeah, he doesn't feel, oh, doctor, could you just put him in the hospital? And so they put me in the hospital because they knew I was going to be taken care of. I mean, it was, it was pretty, that's bizarre. Think about that. Oh you know? That yeah. is, that is really weird. I mean, yeah. I've and never heard would, of such a thing. They would disappear. Or my mother would disappear because she dealt with a lot of stuff. She would disappear and my father would be gone. I mean, keep in mind, I'm 10 years old. He's 80. I mean, so this is a weird situation. And they're in my head, five older siblings, but they were gone. Most of them, once they went away to college, they were gone and there'd be no food. So mm. I'd be like scrounging around. So it was in some ways it was horrific. In other ways, it was opulent and, and very uh, privileged because my dad had money, mm -hmm. but it was a little short of uh, care. Okay. Nurturing. Like warmth. Warmth. Well, my mother yeah. was, was like this earth mother hippie. I mean, she would take us up to, we had a summer home and she would take us up there and all summer she would just read. And mm. she was, she was so different from my father. She was, you know, very lofty and, you know, reading philosophy and history and just into books and let us run wild. Mm -hmm. I mean, we literally just ran wild. I ran wild as a kid through the woods and such. And, and we had boats and it was, it was, it was kind of idyllic in that way, but um, yeah, it was bizarre. It, but this is the thing. It, it was, I use these words, you know, fecund means fertile. It, mm -hmm. it, it was, it was feral. <laughs> it was fetid in some ways. Cause I didn't bathe all summer, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but it was fecund. It was stimulating. I mean, most mm -hmm. of my siblings, we, we all did pretty well academically and had ambition. And interestingly, we're much more conventional people than our parents. Our parents were truly unconventional, especially my mother. My, my father, you know, he was a man of the 19th century. He kept women in apartments, paid their rent, gave them money. Um, they were his mistresses. He was mm -hmm. married. His first wife lived in New York. He lived in St. Paul, Minnesota. But I'm going on and on. You must, you must want to ask a question. Mm -hmm. Now, this is very fascinating. It's a great start. <laughs> yes, this is exactly what we want to know. And then so from there, I mean, that was your childhood. And, and what about your, you know, your young adult life and, and getting into school? Like how well, I my father was my two older brothers, especially my middle brother, were extremely gifted academically. And, and my middle brother's very handsome guy, tall, you know, he was a good looking guy. My father resented his sons. He wasn't mm -hmm. proud of, of us, uh, resented them. They both did well. So I was his great hope to be a failure. I mean, he constantly mm -hmm. told me, uh, you don't have it upstairs, kid. You're not smart. Oh. You'll, never, you'll never make it. You'll never be able to hold down a job. You're lazy. You, you know, you, when I got accepted into college, and he, he died shortly thereafter, but I got accepted into college and he called me into his room. He's like, we need to talk. He was very gruff. Come on, yeah, sit down. He, he, I sat down. And he's like, I just want to tell you something. You're not college material, okay? You don't have it upstairs. You're going to flunk out. 
That's a, that's a given. You're going to flunk out because, because you, you can't cut it. And because you don't have it, don't be embarrassed. There's no shame. You just don't have it. There's nothing, there's nothing going on between the ears. And I remember thinking, because when you're a child, you believe what your parents tell you. Absolutely. So I went away to college. Do you know I never got a book? I, I had it because he died and I had a trust fund. I went to college the start of every semester. I would get all of my books. And I would think, what's the point? I'm, I don't, I'm too dumb to make it through college. I would go to the bookstore the next day because the trust fund would get the bill to pay it. I would return the books for cash. I did that every, every semester. I never had a textbook. If I really needed something, I might say, hey, could I look at your book? And I graduated with like a 3 <laughs> It was like the craziest thing. I made it through college yeah. without cracking a book. I mean, it was... And my test, well, the reason I got into college, I was like toward the bottom of my class. I went to this horrific prep school, just horrific. And I was like toward the bottom of my class. I thought I'll never get into college. And I took the SAT and the, the counselor guy who, you know, refers you. It's like, um, your SAT scores are, this just doesn't make sense. He's like, they're really mm-hmm. high. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. He's like, like looking at me like, but you're dumb. You know what I mean? Like, cause I kind of like presented, I guess, like if they'd ask me questions, I wouldn't raise my hand. Cause I'm like, oh yeah. But I kind of, in the back of my mind, I would think like, well, yeah, that's, you know, it was Charles the second, you know what I mean? <laughs> or something like that. Or, well, of course, Richelieu, you know, unified France. So they could, you know I mean? Little things. Cause I would just absorb it. So mm-hmm. anyway, so then I went to college. I was a skier. I was obsessed with sports mm-hmm. um, and I just wanted to be in Colorado. So I got into this college in Colorado and skied like crazy and just loved college. I had, I loved it. And second semester, senior year, you had to graduate. It was not one of those colleges where you could go five and a half years or six years. Mm-hmm. You, if you had to graduate in four years. It was a small Jesuit college. And I needed three credits to graduate, but it was February and the semester had started in January and there were no, I needed three credits. And they said, well, there's only one internship that is starting late. And that's the television news internship Mm. at KBTV. Mm. Now it's KUSA. It's at KBTV, downtown Denver said, but it's really competitive. I mean, you've got university of Colorado, Denver Mm -hmm. university, Colorado college, uh, you know, all these colleges, everybody competes, but you can put your name in the hat. So I did, I went in there, I auditioned, I talked to them, gave an interview. I bought a suit. Um, and lo and behold, like two weeks later, I got the call. They said, well, you're one of the three, you're going to be the intern. So I got this internship and through the internship, they said, would you help out Loretto Heights? It was a women's college. They have a television production class and they need some students to come to act as talent for their production class. Would you do it? You get extra points. I said, okay. So I go over there in the audience are the news directors from the local television stations to grade these students. And they're like, who's going to be the anchor man? And, and we're all like, and I, you know, I've got hair longer than mine now. And I, you know, I'm just I'm like a ski bum. I'm like, I'll do it. So I go up there and I'm doing it. And halfway through reading the teleprompter and doing this, there a horrible thunderstorm hits. And it's like, it's like lightning. And like the, <laughs> the lights go out. I'm ad living, talking to like, just be with us, you know, doing all this stuff. And like we finish, they, they correct, they come back. We're going to take a break. We come back. We get off the set. I go to walk out. And the guy's name was Roger Ogden. He was the news director from KBTV. And he's like, hey, you come here. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I have people I pay a lot of money who couldn't have handled that situation anywhere near as well as you just handled it. 
when you finish with college, call me. And I was like, wow. And I said to him, well, I'm actually an intern at your station. Yeah. Because he didn't know me from a can of paint. And I'm right. like, yeah. So he says, okay. Uh, he's like, uh, well, come see me. So I went to talk to him and he's like, okay, I can give you a job as a writer, probably, you know, like a news writer, which was, you know, minimum wage practically. He goes, or you could go off to a small town, small market, get some on-air experience and then come back here with a good resume and a tape and I'll put you on the air. So I went off to Grand Fork, no, Bismarck, North Dakota first. Oh my. Wow. <laughs> as a photographer. <laughs> oh, they put you there as a photographer. I got a job as a photographer. Yeah. And then you came back and... No, I went, okay, so this is, and I hope I'm not boring with this. I, anyway, no, so no, I go to Bismarck, North Dakota, where everyone is like 6'2 and blonde and, and gorgeous. I drive with my Chevette to all the way from, I'm from St. Paul, Minnesota. It's from Minnesota up to Bismarck, which is in the middle of the nowhere to me. I don't know a soul. It's February. It's like so bleak. And I get this apartment every in the industry, everybody kind of scratches each other's back or helps you out. Well, the guy that was leaving said, Hey, you can take over my lease. It was the coolest furnished little apartment in an old house with a, a walk up step. You know, you go up to the back and as you go in and, and I'm like, great. And so I got his apartment. I went in first day of work. I'm a photographer. I told him I knew how to shoot. I didn't know how to shoot, I, but I take the camera and I'm learning as I go and doing stories and learning editing. And that night, somebody calls me and said, hey, it's Becky. I'm a reporter here at the station. I'm like, oh, yeah. She said, yeah, we're all going out. You want to come? You know, I mean, it's like everybody, right within a couple of days, I had friends and was hanging out. Then, as a photographer, I was working for a general manager who was about 28. He was the son of the station owner. This, his father owned a series of small market TV stations. He went to L.A., went to a cocktail bar, he was super tall, like six, seven. There was this very tall hostess or host at the cocktail bar. He met her. He fell for her. He said, you come to Bismarck, North Dakota, and I'm going to make you an anchor woman. And she's like, okay. So she comes. Her name was Judith. I can't remember her last name. So she comes to Bismarck to be an anchor woman. And then they said, Judith wants to learn how to be a reporter. Well, she had no training whatsoever. She had no journalistic training. So the news director said, hey, you went to college, right? And I said, yeah. He said, well... I want you to go out with Judith. You will ask the questions. You will give her questions to ask. And if, if she doesn't you know, get the right sound, you will ask the questions. You will write the story. You will edit the story. You will write her stand-up. You will do everything for her. So I'm like doing everything for this woman. And, and we would fight because I would shoot her stand-ups and not to disparage her, but she would have sunglasses on and and I'm like, Judith, you got to take the sunglasses off. And she, she'd be like, no, I don't want to. I don't want to take the sunglasses. <laughs> and I'm like, no, Judith, you have to take the sunglasses. So she'd take them off. It would be like 15 takes to get her to say something like, it's going to snow tomorrow in Bismarck. We might expect 18 inches. You know what I mean? And she, it would take time after time to get her to do it. Anyway, I was starting to get the hang of being a reporter and writing the stories for her. I came across this big story. These air traffic controllers called me. Now this is 1981, Ronald Reagan's in office. And they said, you know what? We're gonna go on strike because we have it so bad as air traffic controllers. We're, we're, we're walking out, we can't take it anymore. And I'm like, wow, would you go on camera? And they're like, yeah, it'll probably cost us our jobs but we're gonna quit anyway because they're working us around the clock and we're at you know wit's end. I'm like, oh, okay. So I take Judith out, 
We shoot this great story. I go to little Bismarck airport, get the little planes, take it off. I come back and Judith says to me, I need the script by three o'clock because I'm getting my highlights done at 3.30 and I'm way, way overdue for my highlights. And if I miss this appointment, it's going to be another three months because there's only one stylist in Bismarck who can really do proper highlights. I'm like, okay, I'll get you the script. So I'm working on the script. I give it to the news director to read it. He's like, damn good damn good story. And he hands it to me. He goes, go, you know, get her to track it. I go to track it with her. And she said, it's five to three. I said, we well, said by three. She said, well, you know, it's going to take me 20 minutes to track it. Cause it was hard for her to get, you know, lay a voice track down. So she goes to the news director and said, I'll do this Monday. Cause I need to get my hair highlighted. And he's like, Oh, okay. We'll do it Monday. You know? So she leaves. I'm like, oh, damn, it was such a good story. Anyway, I go to put it down on my desk and go to do something else. Well, the afternoon paper comes out. We used to get a morning paper and an afternoon paper. Headlines across the afternoon paper. Patco strike imminent. You know, air traffic controllers may walk on a job. So the news director, whose name was Dick, appropriately, yelled out, Cheetah, get another reporter. We need that story. It's our lead at six. We used to have like a later news times where and when there was only one newscast. And I'm running around trying to get a report. I'm like, there's no one here. There's no one here. And he's like, okay, I'm going to do it. Cause he used to be a reporter. I'll do it. And he takes the script and he was, he was kind of a, you know, he, he'd gone around the bend. He stands up and he looks at me and looks at the script and he just like slowly sinks back down. It's like, I can't do it. I, I don't, I can't do it. And he looks at me and he's like, take the glasses off. It's like one of those old, those old movies. I'm like, yeah. He goes, can you do anything with your hair? I'm like, well, I I have some Tenex hair gel. I could gel it back. He's like, anybody got a suit in here? Anybody got a suit and tie in here? He's like, Cheetah, you're doing the story. So I went out, I tracked it. I edited it. I went out into the parking lot, set up a camera, shot my standup. It aired. It was the lead story. Seconds after the SIG out, you know, it was KXMB TV, Stephen Cheetah, KXMB TV, the phone starts to ring on the assignment desk. It's a guy from the number one station in town who knew me, who wanted to talk to me. He said, my news director just yelled out, who's that reporter? And the guy who called me said, I told him you're actually a photographer. You were just filling in. And the competitive news director said, well, he's the best reporter they have. So tell him next opening we have, it's his. And so I'm like, oh, wow. You know, so I'll wait around. Anyway, I had a girlfriend at the time who was a reporter at the newspaper in town who saw my story. And she said, you know, there was an ad in our newspaper that Grand Forks is looking for a weekend anchorman. And I'm like, oh, wow. She said, I think you should send them that story. Well, I sent them the story, my one story. And I waited a few days and I called and then spoke to the news director. And he said, yeah, I got your story. And he started to laugh. He's like, that was the quickest resume tape I've ever seen. There was one story. Obviously, there was a problem when you edited it. I said, oh, no, I only have one story. And he's like, you only have one story. He's like, well, I filled the job anyway. But call me back when you have two or three stories. And I have another opening, you know, because I really liked what I saw. I said, OK. So I hung up the phone. I did a few more. Um, I did a few more stories. And he called me again. And he said, the guy I hired backed out. He's going into the Peace Corps. Can you send me another tape? And I'm like, oh, I've got a few more stories. So I sent him the tape. I went down to Grand Forks, met with him. He took me out to dinner. He's like, you have to have a drink. And this is 1981. You have, to have a, you have to have a drink. So I had a martini. And then he's like, you have to have two. I mean, the guy, again, big drinker, this news director. So I had two drinks. We go back to the station. He said, okay, so uh, the crew's still here. 
I want you to do the news. I'm like, what? He's like, we're just going to do the run through, like the news that they had just um, recorded. I, I watched the record. I did it with no, uh, you know, nerve, anything. I had two drinks, whatever. Did it, apparently nailed it because the next day he called me at like 11 and said, there's a contract in the mail. You know, you're going to be our new anchorman. So that's oh my. how it all started. That's amazing. And this is just the beginning of your story. We're yes. just getting started. So where do we go from here? What's uh, next? From here, I fell in love and uh, ran away to Europe. Well, what I'll, I'll go back to my call me by your name aspects, okay, of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to this horrible boys academy prep school uh, where I was um, tormented horribly, picked on. Um, in part because of what my father had done. It was that type of a small town society place. People knew that my mother was much younger, that she came from rather humble, if not maybe dubious uh, background, and that my father was a bootlegger. Um, And so I was kind of a, I didn't really fit in with those really wealthy, cultured, privileged people, and they would call me names. And I was also starving because there was never any food in that house. So they would torment me about my weight because I was so skinny. Um, I had no friends. And, you know, I think that it had an impact on me being in that all male environment to a certain degree. And then I went away to college and I did have friends but I've still always very wounded, I think, from my childhood and somehow wounded inside. And, and sophomore year, we went to Padre Island. And there were guys in college that were not nice to me either, that would torment me and call me fag and, you know, make fun of me and be, be horrible. So I went to Padre Island with some sorority girls. There were a couple of guys that went to and we all hung out. We had fun. Then we had to drive back to Denver, Colorado, where I went to college. And we were driving and these three sorority girls were in the back of my Camaro sleeping. And one guy got in with me and I was driving. Then he started to drive. And as we were driving, he was a big jockey muscle guy, six, three and a half. As we were driving back to Denver, you know, all night, you know, we, we chatted a bit. He'd never really talked to me much before. And um, I said, you know, some of your friends don't like me. There's this one guy whose nickname was Tuna. And he was this big popular guy on campus. And he used to just go out of his way to say very cruel things to me. And, you know, it, I'm like, yeah, I, I don't understand. I don't really know your friends. And yeah, this guy's so nasty. And he said, well, it's kind of obvious why he's nasty to you. And I'm like, why? And the guy had um, horrible acne, like horrible acne scars, like, like uh, Noriega. I mean, just, and he was overweight and extremely unattractive. And I'm like, well, well, why? And he said something very complimentary. I mean, he said, well, look at you, which was, you know, touched me. And I was like, oh my God. And he was so nice to me on that ride. I fell in love. I just fell in love with this guy. And, um, you know, I didn't see him much, hardly ever saw him. And then we would hang out once in a while for the next couple of years. Um, but I really, I was like, you know, this is so crazy. I know he doesn't have an interest in me. And I was still seeing girls at the time. And, but I knew I was in love with this guy. So the night before graduation, we had a party at the house I lived with three other guys. Well, they were playing Donna Summer. You know, Bad Girls was really big at that time. That was when I was like, Bad Girls. And it was like, everybody's drinking. I'm like, I got to graduate in the morning. I'm going to bed. I went down to my bedroom in the basement. What about one, two in the morning? My uh, door knocks on the door. He comes in and he said, hey, I'm too drunk to drive. Can I crash in here? And I said, sure. 
And there was a rug on the floor and I threw him a pillow and I threw him like the bedspread. And he's like, oh, I can't sleep on the floor, man. It's too hard. I'm like, well, I have a single bed. He goes, oh, come on. And so I'm like, well, I guess. I mean, it's like, like, so he gets into the bed with me the night before graduation and he rolls over and starts to kiss me, passionately kiss me. Okay. So this is something that I probably had wanted for years, but when you're in that position and you're not psychologically prepared for it, I just went, what are you doing? (laughs) I was like, what, what are you doing? And he's like, uh, oh God, I'm just really drunk. I got to go. And he got up and he, dressed and he storms out of the room and I'm like what the you know what the hell happened there Mm -hmm. anyway so we go through graduation the next day he's number one in the class he was a brilliant guy he is at the very front I'm at the back we're in our caps and gowns it's a small graduating class he ignores me like the plague throughout graduation day all day he ignores me ignores me ignores me I see him we talk graduation's over my mother had come from my graduation and she, she was a wonderful mother, but she had her own life. And, and as soon as the diploma was in my hand, she walked up to me and said, you know, I have to get to the airport. Okay. I mean, congratulations, honey. Boom. And she was in a cab and off to the airport. She was out of there. And so I'm alone saying goodbye to friends who are packing up and leaving, but there are parties that night. So I go around looking at every party, looking for John. That was this guy that I was in love with. And I would go to every party looking for him. He wasn't at this party. wasn't at the party. Finally, I go to a party in an apartment, uh, some kids who lived in an apartment. And there he is standing with a big group of guys, you know, laughing and talking and drinking. And I walk up, I say, Hey, John, uh, you know, can we, can we talk? And he turns around, he looks at me, he goes, Hey, Cheetah, congratulations, man. Good luck. Good luck with life, man. Good luck. Hey, he turns around, put, turns this back to me. I'm like, no, John, I really want to talk. Can we talk? And he's like, Hey man, no. Yeah. I told you. Good luck. You're going back to Minnesota, man. Great God. Well, yeah, you, you know, you, you're killing it, man. Good luck. And I'm like, hey, no, seriously, John. And he says, all right, five minutes in the hall outside. I'll see you in five minutes. And I like with a really stern face, I'm like, okay. So I go out in the hallway and I'm waiting there. It seems like an eternity. It's been probably 12 minutes by now, but it seems like it's been five years. I'm like, okay, I'm just, I'm just going to go. And I go to turn around and the door opens and he comes walking up and he walks up to me and he looks at me and he goes, you know, he's tall and he looks down and he goes, I was super drunk last night. I'm not like that. I don't know what the hell I was thinking. I wasn't even thinking clearly. It was, it, it just, all right, forget about it. It was a big mistake. Okay. Forget about it. And he, he's like, good luck, cheetah. Okay. Bye. And he turns to walk away. And I, I wanted to talk, but like, when you really want to talk, your throat gets I'm like, no, no. And I'm like, but John, no. And then he's walking like the door. I'm like, but that is what I've wanted for two years. I'm like, John, I love you. I'm like, John, I'm in love with you. And he stops as he gets to the door and he walks up to me and he says, good luck, Cheetah. Turns around, oh. walks away, closes the door. I'm like, oh. oh my God, I've poured out my heart. I mean, this is the person oh. that I mean, I was drinking like a fish, by the way, because I thought I was never going to see him. I had a bottle of Cutty Sark and I would just, it was the closest I've ever been to being, you know, having a problem. And I would drink the Cutty Sark and sit there and cry and think, oh my God, you know, my father's right. I'm worthless. No one will ever love me. I'll always be this, you know, loser. So I had my internship continued because they were going to try to you know, get me a job. I was still at the television station. Everybody leaves Denver. I'm all alone in my, I get my own little apartment for the summer and I'm working and coming home alone to my apartment. Two weeks go by and John had a summer job in Breckenridge, Colorado. And I thought he's with his stepfather or no, his father and his stepmother up in Breckenridge. I'm just going to call him. I, you know, he's close. Maybe I could go visit him or something. I'm so lonely. 
So I call and his stepmother said, he's gone. He's not here. He just left. And I said, oh, where did he go? She said, well, I think he went to Denver to see a friend. And I said, oh, okay, well, um, I'll call him later. She said, no, leave your name. I'll have him call you. I'm like, no, no, that's okay. That's okay. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to have him call me. I'll call later. She's like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah. I hang up the phone and I thought, who would he be seeing in Denver? What friend would he have in Denver? And all of a sudden I thought, I'm the only person that's still here. And I was in a basement apartment and I went over to the window on the side and I raised the little shade. And as I raised the shade, his VW bug pulled up and parked. I mean, it was like so serendipitous. I'm like, holy shit, it was him. And he got out with a bag and he walked around and I opened the door as he came walking up to the door and he walks in. I'm like, hey, he goes, hey, he walks in, he throws his bag down and he goes, you want to go for a margarita? I was like, sure. You know, my heart is like, Oh my God. You know, I mean, he's got to want to at least still be friends. So we went to governor's park. It was called in Denver down by the Capitol. And we had margaritas and we had something to eat. We came back and we were intimate for the first time. And as soon as he finished, he went over and sat down on the sofa and said, that was disgusting. I'm so disgusted with myself. Oh my goodness. This is just horrible. And and got up the next morning and he left. Mm. And again, I'm crestfallen. I quit my internship. I go back to Minnesota. He calls me in Minnesota and says, I really want to come visit. I have two weeks off. They give us a vacation in middle July on my summer job. I'm like, sure. So we go up to Sugar Sands. That's my summer home, just the two of us. We, again, are intimate and I'm more in love than ever. We go back to fly back and he's like, yeah, I'm going to law school in the fall. And I said, yeah, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I might go to grad school. And um, we go back, he, we go to the airport. At the, in those days, you could walk to the, the plane. As I'm walking to the plane, you know, I, I, he turns around and says, well, you know, I'm going to miss you. I'm really going to miss you. I'm like, I'm going to miss you too. I'm like, you know, it was great. It was really great spending time. And I look at him and there's tears in his eyes. And I kind of knew right there, he wasn't going anywhere. So he flew back. I have guilt over this. He did not go to law school. He came back to Minnesota, lived in my mother's house. We got jobs. We worked as waiters. We made enough money to run away to Europe and live in Europe together where we could be lovers. Free. And oh. be free of our friends and all the judgment and everything. And it was, it was an amazing love story. And oh, my goodness. It. It where, is a- where in Europe did you guys go? We went everywhere. We got jobs in Switzerland. I got a job as a ski instructor and he was working in a hotel. And then I quit. I, I um, Not to disparage Switzerland. It's beautiful, but it was really boring. And they worked me like a dog. And um, I had to fulfill the summer requirement, like in a hotel. And then leave the country for six weeks. You can't stay there continuously because then you can apply for residency and they don't want that. So it was very, I I just, I left, I couldn't handle it. And then we both wound up going back to the U S. Wow. Stay that long. And that's a beautiful story. That's when I got the the job. Well, am I boring you now with this? Do you want to ask? No, no, I do. I have one question because Mm -hmm. what, what year was this around? Was it still in the 80s? So in the mm-hmm. 1980s, you know, here in, in the U.S., you know, for the LGBTQ plus community, you know, it was not like it is today. It is it was nothing like it is um, today. And so the fact that you fell in love mm-hmm. and had to flee the freaking country you to feel free. The country. 
like they did free. in like the 1920s or whatever, or like what Lord Byron did when he went off to Greece or Africa or something, you know, to get away because they could, you know, live freely. Yeah, we 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 left and we went over there because we were far from the Manning crowd and our friends, you know, all those, mm-hmm. those you know, rah-rah kids from college who would freak out if they knew. Um, yeah, and it was it was it was a beautiful story until it wasn't, and um, I think what actually destroyed it was homophobia, because he could not bring himself to. I I don't know. I guess because you know my mother was eccentric, but boy, she was loving. I mean, smothering us with kiss, kisses and loving, loving, and then she'd disappear for, you know, she'd walk out the door and be gone. But um, she was loving. So I grew up with like affection. And so I was very affectionate with him. And I think he'd be in a jock and big guy. He just couldn't, he couldn't handle it. And I think that left me, um, what, what, unfulfilled, frustrated. Um, and also I was really naive. I, I thought I, you know, one of my roommates in college was taking a human sexuality class and it was like true, false, true, false. And he's like, anal sex is widely practiced around. I'm like, Oh, that's false. Who'd do that? Nobody would do that. That's gross. I was like, that's a, you know, so I was, I was super naive. We probably needed, uh, some guidance on intimacy and affection and, you know. Yeah. And you were also living in a country that, you know, was not accepting of um, queer people. I mean, no, they just weren't in the 80s. And we also had the AIDS um, epidemic well, during AIDS that time. Came a few years well, later, yeah, a few years later. But, you know, it's in that that decade, in that era. And um, that just made it even worse for people to come out and to be able to be free and to be themselves. So. <laughs> The you fact that, that you that you ran away to Europe is just my mind is like just blown. It 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 what we ran away to Europe. He mm. gave up law school. I gave up graduate school, um, and we lived freely. Although when we would be around Australians or other Americans who would you know start talking with us on the boat, we, we you know where we went. We went to Crete. The southern tip mm-hmm. of Crete, it's called Matala, M-A-T-A-L-A, I think Matala, which was so primitive. I can't remember whether it was, tw- I think it was $12. It might've been $12 each a week. It was something crazy. It was this little, it was spotlessly clean, this very primitive little pension, like one story, little white cinder block with painted, you know, with stucco over it or something. And it was clean and we had a communal bathroom and a communal shower. We just lived there for quite a while and you know we're we're in love and eating souvlaki and little greek salads and beer that's all we ate <laughs> that's what uh was a, it was idyllic and amazing to be able to love freely i mean young people today are, are very lucky you know very lucky yeah they don't it's it's hard to to realize what you have unless you've experienced you know, that kind of a a period where you can't just be yourself. So from there, you guys came back and then was that kind of the end of the relationship? Um, I wrote a letter to my mother and said, you know, if you want to tour the British Isles, which because she always considered herself, you know, 
English heritage and English Scotch Irish. She wanted to see it. I said, I'll do it with you if you want. So she's like, hey, I'm coming over. So I bolted from Switzerland, which wasn't easy because they keep your passport when you're working there. I had to go to the police and say, I want my passport. And they're like, no, we have to get approval to give it to you. I'm like, from your employer. So anyway, we I, we both got our passports. He didn't want to leave. I, I feel bad. He left when I left. And we, I went to, we wound up going to London. And again, he left that morning to fly back to the US. And I went uh, to take the train to Prestwick, Scotland to rendezvous with my mother and one of my sisters. And that morning when he got up to go to the airport, he you know showered. And then as he walked over, he came to the bed I was still in bed and he leaned over and he kissed me. And again, he was crying. I saw tears in his eyes and I'm like, he loves me. I know he loves me, but he couldn't, he couldn't uh, express it. The, the homophobia, the, the feeling of being himself was so repugnant to him that he couldn't do it. And I couldn't deal with loving unconditionally and overtly and openly and having it unrequited. And I, I saw him like, I know he loves me. But so then it got complicated when we went back. So you want to hear about that? <laughs> so we yes. go back to the U.S. and all my college friends yes. are there. And oh, God, this is I have to be careful here because uh, not everyone knows what happened here. Um, so anyway, I go back to Minnesota. And one of my college friends is having a pool party at her parents' home. I go to the pool party. John now has gotten a job as an overnight stock clerk in a grocery store or something, you know, I mean, just to make money and still living at my mother's house, which is vacant much of the time because she's up at her summer home. It's summertime. So he's living there. I go to this pool party and we're jumping in the water and swimming. And I've got this old swimsuit on. And one of my college buddies said, I think you need a new swimsuit. And I'm like, why? And he's like, hey, you can see your shroom, man. So I'm like, oh, whoa, shit, I'm sorry. So I jump in the pool. And sitting across the pool, like Mrs. Robinson, is this older woman sunning herself, smoking cigarettes and reading with sunglasses. Well, it's my friend's older sister who's in her 30s. I mean, she's like an older woman. <laughs> and I swim by and she's like, I don't think you need a new swimsuit. I'm like, why? And she said, I like the view. And I was like, Oh, thanks. And then she's like, hey, come out, sit with me. So I went out and I sat with her and I talked with her and I really liked her. And she said, do you play tennis? And I'm like, yeah, I like to play tennis. I'm not very good. She goes, we should play. I'm like, okay. So she's like, give me your number. Well, the next day she calls me and we start playing tennis and we start hanging out. And they came from fairly affluent family and their grandmother had this one of those grand Victorian duplexes where upstairs was an apartment very elegant downstairs was an apartment well my friend from college lived in the downstairs she lived in the upstairs well she was having a party I go up there I'm at the party and everything and we're like oh we need more something we need more beer we need something we go downstairs to get more beer or to look myself and this older woman and I bump into her she bumps into me and for some reason kissed her and we started making out. We wound up in the guest bedroom in the downstairs apartment and we had sex. We get up giggling to run back up stairs. John couldn't make it to the apartment, to the party because he was working that night. 
but they were overstaffed and they let him out early. So as we walk out of the bedroom to go back up through the kitchen, the back stairway up to the party, I look over my shoulder and I see John sitting on the sofa. And I'm like, John. And he gets up and look, and he's a big guy, looks at me with such anger. And I'm like, John, John, I'm like, got my hands up. I'm like, John, uh, it's not what, it's not what you think. And he's like, you, you know, starts screaming at me. He goes with that, you know, he's like calling her names and she's like out of here. She goes running upstairs and I'm like, John, I'm like, I think he's going to kill me. So I go running up the stairs and like, boom, he doesn't come. I'm waiting for him. He doesn't come. And then all of a sudden we hear like all this ruckus, like pots shattering. He's out in front of the house. He ripped their door, like the screen door off of their, the door. He's shattering pots. He's ripping all the screens. And we all run down and he tears out and he's still got that VW bug. He drives away in his VW bug. And one of my friends, that Pat Benatar song was popular. She's like, you're a screen ripper, pot smasher. And they're all like laughing and think it's funny. Well, he paid and had it fixed. Then this woman and I began a very torrid affair. I mean, she was affectionate. She knew what she was doing in bed. She taught me what to do. It was, it was just really, I was madly in love again. I know I'm gay. Okay. I'm gay. I'm not saying, but I was young. I, I was madly in love and um, we would be driving somewhere like going to play tennis and we'd be at a stoplight and we would look over and there would be his VW bug. He'd be following us everywhere. You are, you are a heartbreaker. Goodness, you. <laughs> you think? Oh my God. He well, it gets better. Whew. It gets it gets better. So we carry on into the fall because this was in the summer. Now it's like maybe, God, now it's maybe like December, November. God, I have to be careful. Well, nobody knows who these people are, right? So I it's okay. So he sends me a letter that basically says, if I can't have you. I'm going to make sure no one else has you either. And I find it disturbing. And this older woman, why don't we'll, we'll call her Mary. Okay. Um, we'll say her name is okay. Mary works over in Minneapolis. I said, Hey, do you want to go to lunch today? I got something I want to talk to you about. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I drive over, I go to her office. I'm like, Oh, look at this letter I got from, you know, you know who and I tossed her. She's reading it. She finishes reading it. And she's like, oh, oh my God, I just, um, I cannot go to lunch. You know, and I'm, I'm naive. I'm, you know, I'm like, oh, what? And she's like, no, I can't go to lunch. I'm really sorry. I can't, I can't. I forgot. I've got this uh, appointment. It's pressing. You know, cause she's, I think she was a, a social worker, psychologist or whatever. So she's professionally trained. She's like, I'm sorry, I'll see you tonight. Okay. I'm like, yeah, okay. I'll see you tonight. So I drive all the way back to St. Paul. I get back to St. Paul and milling around my mother's home now and she's cooking that night. She's making dinner and she's making a pie and John comes walking in and he sits down looking kind of crazed. And my mother said, I need whipping cream for the pie. Will you run to the supermarket and get some whipping cream? And I'm like, Oh no, I, I, I can't. Cause I'm like, and John's like, yeah, let's go. Let's go get the the whipping cream. Okay. You want, cause I've been avoiding him like the plague. Let's go get the whipping cream. And I'm like, oh, I really don't want to go. I don't want to go. And my mom's like, go get the whipping cream. I need it. I'm like, okay. So I go, I get into his V-dub. We get in and he tears off heading downtown, like in the different direction from the grocery store. And he's going really fast. And he's looking at me with this crazed look. And he has this horrible smell. Do you, you know what I'm saying? Like when people it like, it's, it's, he smelled and he's like screaming at me, telling me, I'm going to make sure no one 
has you. No one. Do you understand? And I'm like, what, 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 what do you mean, John? What are you talking about? And he gestures to the back seat. And I'm thinking, God, he's got a gun back there. He's going to, he's going to, he said something. If, if I have to kill myself in the process or something like that, and I'm thinking he's going to shoot me and shoot himself. And I'm like, where are you going, John? Where are we going? And he's like, I, to, to, to take care of this, to end it, to end it. And I'm like, John, and I'm like, do I jump out? Because he's going really fast. Do I jump out of the car? What do I do? What do I do? And I, I'd heard like people say, like, if you don't react the way you're expected to react in those situations, it can. And I just, I, I took a deep breath and I just turned and I said, Joy needs her whipping cream, John. She's waiting for the whipping cream. We better get to the supermarket now, all right? I mean, come on, what are you doing? I mean, this is crazy. She needs that whipping cream. And, and he just, he like looks at me and like puts the brakes out, you know, and turns around and, and goes to the store. We get the whipping cream. We get back to the house. I go to get out. He just stays in the car. And when I close the door, he just drives away. And he went and he checked himself into some kind of crisis center and like disappeared for a couple of weeks. And um, that was a close call, I think. <laughs> I, don't I don't know. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, you know, poor John. I, I mean, that was horrible for you, but he obviously had some major issues with his yeah. identity, his sexuality. And I could imagine that that probably played a, a big toll on him. Well, he um, landed on his feet. He's, he, I, I hope, I don't want to say anything that would identify him, but he had a very successful life, had a very successful relationship. Um, and, you know, I think he's happy. You know, I think he's, I think he's happy. The thing is, is he remained, he, he checked out, came back to the house, but was like a zombie. I don't know whether they give you like medication. And during this time, I was looking for a job and the woman who, the older woman was writing up these resumes for me. And doing all this stuff. And because I didn't, you know, I was like a ski bomb. I'd sit there and she'd smoke and write up and I'd go, here's a job. Because I'd go to, it's called Broadcast, Broadcast Magazine and they would have postings. And that's how I just sent all these things off. And um, finally, I got the job in North Dakota and I left for North Dakota, Bismarck. And then he left uh, right afterward for another state. And then I've never seen him since. But I know he landed on his feet and is okay. Your first relationship, um, your first love. I mean, it's it's so wild. <laughs> it's absolutely wild, you know, what happened. And I know you're writing this memoir, but I can't wait to see the movie version of this <laughs> or the Netflix series or something. My goodness, Stephen. It's deserving. Trust me. I'm all in. Really? This. Oh, good. Yes, good, it's good. Fa- it's fascinating. So where do we go from here? You know, so you know, what's next in your life and in your career? Well, well, love. It was my career always took was second to love and relationships and happiness. And I have to be careful here, too, because um, I was still madly in love with this woman. And when I was only in Bismarck as a photographer for a few months when I got the anchor job. But when I got to Bismarck, I was seeing this reporter for the local newspaper, who we'll call um, Kathleen. How about that? And Kathleen, so my career in so many ways was launched by these amazing, intelligent women because Mary wrote the resume tapes. I mean, wrote, wrote the, the, up the resumes and the cover letters and sent, and I just mailed them. She got me this gig as a photographer. Then this other woman, Kathleen, 
you know, suggested the job in Grand Forks, which I'm like, oh, I'm not good enough. I got that job. So then I went to Grand Forks and um, I don't know, you still want to hear what happened next or do you have questions? No, this is your story. Okay. We're, we're, we're here story? for it. All right. So then my story then. <laughs> we so want to hear your whole story here. So we Grand are, Forks yes, was between, oh my God, there. Grand Forks was between, uh, or Sugar Sands, our summer home or summer house cabin, whatever you call it, was halfway between Grand Forks and Minnesota. So some of my friends, I've really, in Minnesota, a lot of people have little summer homes, little getaways because there's lakes everywhere. One of my friends from college would go to her mother, grandmother's place and I would go to ours. They were right on the same group of lakes and we would hang out. Well, my college friend's little brother had a friend from college that was there and his name was Tony. And Tony was just my type, you know, very punk rock at that time, you know, wore like the olive drab and the leather and was really tall and just really punk, you know, really punk rocker so anyway so tony and i connected and we had this intense relationship but it never really progressed but again i started to think i think i'm in love with him well he was going away to europe to study in aix-en-provence and i'm like i hate living in grand Forks, north dakota i i really didn't like being on television at that time because of the constraints of having to wear a suit every day and cut your hair. And I just, I really got tired of it. I thought I, I'm not cut out for this. I just was like, you know, and, and I kept screwing up and I was like, oh, I'd show up. I'd drive to Minneapolis party. Cause I would be off Thursday, Friday party, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, get up at like five in the morning, drive six hours to Grand Forks and then live in a mobile home out on the prairie with these two crazy guys. And then, you know, I just, I just got tired of it. So I decided I'm going to go to Europe too. And I'll, I'll visit Tony, you know, over there and I'll just travel around because I always felt like I got my, my time in Europe was truncated because I got so miserable in Switzerland and I was making good money up in North Dakota. So I saved a ton of money. I quit. I went to Europe traveling around by myself, having fun, thought I would go to Aix-en-Provence from Paris. I'm in Paris really lonely. There's nothing worse than being like alone in a crowd. And Paris, it was so beautiful and so much going on. And I'm going to restaurants alone and going to bars alone. And I'm like, I'm going to go down there. I want to hang out with my friends. There was an overnight train that you could take from Paris to Marseille, France. So I get on the train and I got a first class Eurail pass. And so I'm all alone in this compartment. It's like red velvet seats. And I lay down and I fall asleep and I wake up in the middle of the night and there are two, uh, would appear to be Middle Eastern men in the compartment with me. One is leaning forward across, like looking like almost like looking right in my face. And the other one is standing up, up over me. And I'm like, Oh, I, I better, I better get up. This is weird. And I remember going to get up. And the next thing I know, somebody's like tapping me in the face and my head's hanging off of the, you know, banquette or whatever the seat. I'm like this, it's broad daylight. The train is empty. There, it, it's a it's a policeman, a gendarme, a, a French policeman and an employee of the railroad. And they're like, monsieur, 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 uh, vele, de vele, uh, robbers, you've been, I mean, the robbers have gotten you and they've whatever, knocked you out with something. Because I mean, you don't fall asleep like, like that. You know what I mean? And my money belt was gone. And I'm like, oh my God, what? what do I do? You know, they're like, oh, they, they had my passport. They said they found it on the train. 
So either they had thrown it or they dropped it as they were running. So all I had was my passport. I had 10 francs in my pocket, which is like, what, $1.50, had absolutely nothing. So I go to the U.S. consulate. Well, I get up, I walk out and they're doing, they're looking around. I don't know what they were doing in there. And I'm standing in the hallway, looking out the window and there's a wave of panic. Like you're in a foreign country. You have no money. You have, you have no credit. You know, I didn't have a credit card. I had nothing. And I'm like, what the hell do I do? And I'm like, okay, you're going to be okay. You'll get through this somehow. So I just kind of exhaled and I went to the U S consulate and I don't know if it's true everywhere, but like you have the impression that if you go in there and you're a U.S. citizen, that they're going to say, oh, we can help you. They're like, what do you expect us to do? And I'm like, well, I, I, I'm been, everything's been taken. You know, I, I have nothing uh, except a passport. And they're like, well, so, and so I leave, I go back. I'm like, you got to do something like, there's nothing we could do, buddy. And I'm like, oh my God. So they said, well, why don't you go to the French police? So I go to the French police. And this lovely French police officer was talking to me and she's like, do you have anywhere you can go? Do you know anyone? I said, I have friends there in Aix-en-Provence, but I can't get a, a train ticket because uh, I don't have any money. And she's like, you know, stop, which means hitchhike. And I'm like, I, I, I don't even know what road to get on to hitchhike to, to get there. She's like, or you could try to stow away. You know, I, I could try to stow away. So I walk, I leave the train state or the police station and it was up on a hill and I'm walking because I could see the train tracks. I'm going to follow the train tracks to get to the train station. And I look over my shoulder and the police woman is standing outside watching me go. And as she looks at me, she does the sign of the cross and goes like, that. I was like, oh shit. Like she gives me the sign. Like, I hope you, because in those days, Marseille was a dangerous city. It was, it's, I don't know what it's like today, but it was, it was like a lot of drug smuggling, a lot of organized crime, a lot of crime there. So anyway, I go and get on this little train that goes to Aix-en-Provence. And I, every time the conductor comes, I'd run to the bathroom and then I'd run to the bathroom and they must've let me, it was only like a half hour trip, but I finally got to Aix. I go to Aix, I'm walking through, I see these people who look like American students. <clears throat> and I say, do you know Tony? And they're like, oh, yeah, we do. I, we just saw him in the library in the cathedral next to the cathedral up the hill. So I'm like, oh, my God. So and I'm you know, keep in mind, I haven't eaten now for 24 hours. I haven't had any water because I only had 10 francs. I, I might have been able to get one bottle of water. So anyway, so I'm like, I'm desperate. And it's starting to rain. It's starting to like rain. And I'm like, I get there. I get into the, I knock on the door. I go up to this. It's like this big library in this old cathedral type thing. I'm like, hi, excuse me. Is Tony, Bell? I don't want to say his name. Is Tony here? And um, they're like, oh, he just left. He went, he went back to his place. He, he's in a, in like a little cottage out in the country, this little development. It's about, uh, you know, two miles out of town. And I'm like, oh my God. And they're like, and it, the library is going to close in a few minutes. And it's like, right now it's like torrential rain. And, I'm, and they're like, well, where are you going to go? And I'm like, I, I don't know. And I remember saying, somebody said like, are you okay? I'm like, I just, they gave me a, but someone gave me a banana and I'm like eating the banana because I'm like, oh my God. And I'm like, what the hell am I going to do? And the door flies open and in comes Tony with a yellow rain slicker on. And he walks up to me and he's like, what happened? I'm like, I was robbed. And he's like, yeah, yeah. That, I, I ran into the, those girls on the street. They said that you were looking for me. I knew, and I'm like, hey, he goes, hey, come, come with me. I'm like, well, he goes, we go out. He whips out like another rain slicker or something. And I put the rain slicker on or, or maybe I put my, I got under it with him. I don't know. It's kind of, and the rain's trying and I'm on his moped and I just felt, you know, put my arms around it. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be okay. You know what I mean? It was like, I'm going to be okay. I was like holding it and it's, and he's darting around in the rain. It's like, 
we, we go out and up into like the hills just before the mountains, you know, like as you go like towards Mont-Saint-Victoire, which Cézanne used to paint, you go, there's these little foothills and he was in these like little row of, of townhouses. It was a small little development. We get in there, he gives me a glass of wine and he makes an omelet with cheese and Dijon mustard. And it was the most delicious thing I've ever had. And I didn't leave Aix-en-Provence for another year. I stayed there and had an, an amazing, an amazing year. Uh, it was, it was quite something. Very oh romantic. Oh my goodness. For, yeah. you know, I just think that for somebody that had so much challenges, you know, growing up as a child with getting that love you were looking for, it looks like mm. you were able to get it oh, in many different ways. Oh, I didn't get it from Tony. <laughs> Not didn't, from Tony. That didn't pan out. <laughs> but Aix-en-Provence panned out. I was, yeah, no, no, no. Tony, oh. uh, I missed my chance with Tony because I was insecure. Mm. Um, and who knows, he may not have been, well, I don't know. I know he- Well, at least he, got he saved you that day, right? He I saved mean, me that day and we were- that we were that's special. We were, um, we were not intimate. I think I had my opportunity, but I was, you know, insecure, not knowing. And he wound up going off to Paris and then getting married, was married for one year exactly, and was divorced. So on paper, mm -hmm. yeah, it didn't look good. Yeah, I think we can all relate with, with those type of experiences. So bring us, fast forward us to mm -hmm. the love that you have now, that you've had for oh, how well, long? I, let's hear about how did you meet Mark? That's how I got to know you. Ross and I got to know you and Mark together. Mm -hmm. Mark Tell us about that. And I were both were with other people in 19. It was either 1993 or 1994. I think it might've been January, 1994. And I was looking for an apartment in the city because I was living in the suburbs. And I realized like, you know, living in a suburb like Arlington or Alexandria, Virginia, you could be in Indianapolis or you could be outside St. Paul. It's just a suburb. It didn't have that feel. I really wanted to experience the East Coast feel. And I was looking for an apartment and I looked at his apartment and I didn't, I, I remember saying, and he will always repeat this as I left, I said, I'm not so big on the apartment, but I wouldn't mind living here because he had this grand Victorian house and he laughed and he gave me his card because he knew someone who was a bigwig at CBS. And he said, I could introduce you to her and, you know, we should, we should get together sometime perhaps. And I'm like, okay, but I didn't have the confidence or courage to call him, but I kept his card for two years. It's mm. sad. Isn't that, I kept it on my dresser in my bedroom for two years and would look at it and always thought he was so cute. And just, there was something in that brief encounter that again, touched me somewhere in here, like that he was caring that there was something kind there. And I rented another I gave up, I rented an apartment, continued my relationship at that time. And then we broke up. I gave up my apartment and I rented a room and a house to save money so I could buy my own house. And the guy from whom I rented um, was friends with Mark. And shortly after I moved in, there was a 50th birthday party and Mark was one of the hosts. And I went and Mark came up to me and he said, you know, you don't remember me, but we met a couple of years ago. And I'm like, of course I remember you. You're Mark with a C. I, I, I always remembered you and his partner at the time, we chatted for a minute, came up and said, I want to leave. Got like, right. Like in between us, like, I think we should go. So maybe he was sensing something there. So that was in June, the following summer, 
he and his boy boyfriend had broken up and he was alone at the beach. And I had told the man who, whom I was renting from that I always thought Mark was cute. And I was sitting on the beach reading a book far from the gay, there's this gay enclave and then there's the, the, you know, the kids and families. I'm by myself under an umbrella reading a book and Mark comes walking down the beach. He went, oh, there you are. Hey, Steve. And I'm like, oh, hi, how are you? And he's like, oh, I'm fine. Would you like to come to a, a dinner party at my house tonight? And I was like, sure, of course I would like to come to it. And then as he left, I said, wow, this is so great that you, we ran into each other. And he said, oh, we didn't run into each other. I was looking for you. And that touched me so much that he wasn't playing the cool <laughs> guy at all. He's like, oh, I was looking for you, you know, because... <laughs> And the, the irony is, is that his partner, they had broken up technically like months before, but that morning left, moved out completely. That night we had dinner together. So it was very close, but you know, it was legit. It wasn't like on the down low ever. But, um, and then we started to hang out and he was so sweet and so kind and so supportive. And I think if you've been in, relationships or if you grew up with cruelty uh which i did mostly from my father um you're susceptible to that or you appreciate it mm -hmm. if someone's kind to you or goes out of their way to be nice to you you know you you know and and i just wound up thinking i can never leave this guy i could never i just i just I just love him. I just grab him and I kiss him. <laughs> I just like hold him like he's my, like he's a puppy. I don't know. It's, it's a, it's a good, it's a good relationship. Yeah. And that was how many years ago? How 23, 23 years. Yeah. And when did you, when did you guys, so you were together for a long time in DC. When did you guys get married? 2013. He kept asking me to get married and I kept saying, I don't want a sham marriage. I don't want to do something that's faux. Unless it has teeth, unless it's real, I don't want to do it. So that June, I was heading to the gym. I walked out the door. As I got to Logan Circle here, I live just off the circle to cross the street. I got a news alert. I was in the news business. So my phone and Supreme Court overthrew Prop 8. Supreme Court legalizes essentially same-sex marriage. I stopped. Oh, this is emotional. I stopped in my tracks and I started to cry because it was acceptance of people like me. We could be, you know, legitimate members of society. And it floored me and my phone rang and I answered it. And he said, pick the date. Sorry. Please don't Please apologize. Sorry. Yeah. That was such a historical date and such an important date, not just for you, but for so many people, many people. And like you said, you know, to, to feel like you're finally legitimized and feel like your love is, is accepted by all and, and, and legal and, I and, have and it's legal and yes. real. Like and and real. you, know, you yes. know, I know we'll get to this, that he spent quite a bit of time on a ventilator because of COVID. Yes. And I not had 
that power in those uh-huh. intense moments when they when they needed to shock his heart to keep him alive. If I hadn't been the one, if I hadn't had the power to say yes, shock his heart, because they kept saying, well, he's 71, he's 71. Ugh. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm like, I don't care if he's 71. He's my husband. He's my life. You know, I'm like, do it. And and I could and I heard them. He, they, she was like, he said yes. And they're like, and that phone just went. I could hear like the beep, you know, all those noises and the machines going off. And then, ah. So if I hadn't had that, would they have been able to get in touch with his mother? She's ninety-seven. Yeah, you know. But they oh, would they have let you? Months. Yeah, so, would they have li- let you make all those decisions on his no. behalf? And and we do want to hear about that. But mm-hmm. Ross and I, we were so honored to be able to be a part of your celebration when you guys got married and i'll never forget that day out on the boat with all of your close friends yeah it was what an amazing that was was, and i'm just and i never you know knowing you all these years never knew the backstory um to that so thank you for sharing it's so powerful and you know so jump in and, and i think that's like such a great segue right so you are married licensed married couple and Last year, was it around this time or? Oh, no, it was, was, uh, well, what? Oh, no, it was much earlier. Uh, it was March. It was in March. Yeah, we were right er- before COVID. I mean, as COVID at, started to. At the beginning. At the beginning. Yeah, I, I was in Miami uh, because I wasn't working. I was in Miami and there were Italians everywhere. And I'm not anti-Italian. I love Italians. I love Italy, but Italy was in lockdown. Italians could not go to France. Italians couldn't go to Switzerland. They couldn't leave their country. They were supposed to be staying home, but if they could get to the airport, they could hop on that direct flight from Milano right to Miami. And they were everywhere. I went into the bike shop and I, there were about 25 Italians came in there, a whole group of them. And I understand a little Italian. I speak a little French and I spent so much time in Italy back in the early eighties that I'd still comprehend a bit. And, you know, they they were, had just arrived. They just gotten there. They were, you know, I could pick up things like, Oh, okay, we can relax now. Oh, you know, Italy's a mess. They were running into other Italians. I got into the elevator in in our condo building in Miami. These three people get in a, a husband, wife, and their daughter. And the woman says something like, uh, or the husband said, it's okay now. It's okay now. We can relax. It's good now. And and she leaned her head on his shoulder and kind of was like, oh, thank, you know, thank God, you know, whatever, Grazie, you know, whatever. It's so great to be here and be away from it. And I thought you could have it all over you or inside you already. It's a virus. It's not the Russian army. I mean, it's like, you're not running from that type of enemy. And I went upstairs because I'd been in the elevator with them. And I said, I'm out of here. I'm going back to DC because you can't escape it in this condo building. Get back to DC. Mark is going to work, going to political events. I'm like, you've got to stop it. He wouldn't. He went to an event on Wednesday or Thursday morning. On Saturday night, he wanted us to have a dinner party and he had it catered. I didn't think it was a good idea. This is like March, I don't know, 18th, 19th, something like that. Because I came home on the 10th. Um, About three quarters of the way through dinner, Mark said, I'm really tired excused himself and went to bed. There were other people that were invited, but only two other people came. The three of us sat there, finished eating, whatever. Boom. He goes to bed. Next day, he gets up and goes to work, says, I don't really feel great. About an hour and a half later, he calls me, said he feels terrible. Could I go get him some Zantac or something? Because his headache was so bad. He had a bad sinus headache. I said, yeah, I'll go get you something from the drugstore and I'll meet you on the way back from the office and walk halfway. I'll meet you halfway and then we can walk back together. When I met him halfway home, I could feel the the heat, the fever 
coming off of him. He was burning up with fever. We went upstairs and he lay down on the sofa and he basically did not get up off that sofa other than to go to bed for the next 10 days. And he kept getting worse, kept getting worse. And on Tuesday, his doctor said, I think you need to go into George Washington University Hospital. They have a tent set up for testing for COVID. You know, it's highly unlikely, but you might have COVID. You should go. So we walked the mile and a half. And I have pictures uh, on my phone of watching him because it was like Silkwood going in and he's waving to me. And I'm like, oh, and my heart is, you know, I'm like, God, I hope he doesn't have COVID. Then we get back. That was Tuesday, Wednesday afternoon. I went into his office because he was laying there so sick. And he said, I don't have it, do I? And I said, no, you don't have it. And my sister called me and she said, you know, he has it. And there is in, in our brain, we know certain things, even though we don't bring it to the forefront. And in that instant, I said, yeah, I know he's got it. And I walked back in and he said, oh, they called. I have COVID. And I'm like, oh, great. Well, we're going to get through this. So I was give, trying to get him to take water, trying to get him to zinc and airborne and all this stuff. He kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. My friend, my beloved friend, Dr. Rafi, critical care pulmonologist said, get a pulse oximeter. One of my friends, one of my childhood friends who lives here went over to the drugstore and got me that pulse oximeter. And I began to test his oxygen level three or four times a day. Thank God, I did that. Thank God my friend told me to do it. So he descended Friday night. He said to me, I'm dying. I know I'm dying because he was just like, oh, oh, I'm so sick. I'm dying. He's like, promise me you'll give me a Jewish funeral. And I'm like, let's not oh, talk like this. He's like, promise Mark. me. I'm like, okay, I'll give you a Jewish funeral. And I texted one of my friends who's Jewish and I said, what, what did I, what, what do I, what did I promise to do? I don't, I don't know whether I'll be able to do it. I don't know what it involves. Anyway, that's he, neither here nor there. I was, my, that's how you think. Do you know what I mean? Cause you're so whatever. I wasn't sleeping. Oh, and by the way, Wednesday morning, the three people who were at the dinner party with him Saturday night, the two, the husband and wife and myself, all three that Wednesday morning woke up feeling crummy. Mm-hmm. I had a splitting sinus headache, thought, oh, my allergies are bad. It's March. They usually get bad. I didn't think. I took my temperature. It was like 99, not very high. The next day they said, you need to come in. They called, said, you need to come in and get a COVID test. I went in. I was positive, but I didn't have time to think about myself because he was so sick. So, I mean, I know I had a bad headache and I was tired, but that was kind of it. I didn't have a cough. I didn't have fever. Saturday, he did a little better, but he was so sick. He was just so sick. Monday, he, he was in bad shape. Tuesday, I thought he was a little better. And when Friday night, when he told me he was dying, I called his doctor. She said, can he stand? I said, yes. Does he have a fever? I said, yes. She said, where's his oxygen? I said, it's around 92, 91. She said, that's okay. It really isn't, but you know, it's okay. So we, we stuck it out. Tuesday, I fed him, tried to give him water. I took his oxygen. It was like 90. I went downstairs. I did some things. I went back upstairs. It was about 11 now in the morning. I took his, no, it was about 1 p.m., 1 in the afternoon. I took his oxygen. It was 78, which means imminent death. Oh. I called his doctor. I said, what do I do? She said, get him into the hospital. He needs to get on oxygen immediately. And I, I said, all right, I, I, I can't get an Uber. We, we both have COVID. I mean, what can we do? I can't, he can't, he can't stand. Call, she said, well, call 911. I called 911 at, it was on my phone at 120. 
And I said, my husband has COVID, his oxygen level is critical. He needs to get to the hospital right now. The 911 operator became confrontational and said, and just how do you know he has COVID? I said, because he's tested positive for COVID. She said, uh-huh, right. Where did he get tested? I said, at George Washington University. Uh-huh, and when was this? I said, ma'am, he, he needs an ambulance. He's, he's really sick. She's like, well, I can't just send an ambulance there. I need to know more information. I'm, I'm like, oh, okay, what do you need to know? And then she said, hold on, I'm gonna have you talk to a triage nurse. And I'm like, okay. They put me on hold for about five minutes. Finally, this, she was probably at home. It was probably because it was, you know, uh, I don't know, COVID, she's probably not in an office. She's like, yeah, well, you know, you have, what, what is your issue? I said, my husband has COVID and his oxygen level is 78. He's dying. He needs to get to the, the hospital. And she said, well, how do you know he has COVID? I said, because he tested. I had to go through the whole thing. She put me on hold a couple more times. I said, ma'am, please, he's dying. I'm pleading with her, but I know don't get confrontational. In DC, if you, if you, you know, don't get confrontational, be supplicant, just be demure. And I kept saying, please send an ambulance, please, please. And finally, she's like, okay, we're going to send an ambulance. They'll probably be there in about five or 10 minutes. She was very curt, not, not compassionate, mind you, in the least. And so I'm standing out in front of the house, waiting, waiting. An ambulance like a, from the fire department pulls up. It stops in front of the house and the window's down about three quarters of the way. And I go running up to the window and he raises the window and he says outside the window, yeah, buddy, what do you need? I said, my husband, he has COVID. He's, he's in bed upstairs. He's dying. Can you get him to the hospital? Please, please. He's dying. And he's like, uh, we decide whether somebody goes to the hospital. You don't make that call. Okay, buddy. I mean, like really confrontational with me. I'm like, okay, do you want to check him out? And he goes, yeah, I want to check him out. I'm like, all right. Uh, well, here, go up here. And he's like, I'm not going in that house. You got to bring him out here. I said, but he can't walk. He's like, well, you got to get him down here one way. I'm like, so I have to go up. I had to pick him up. Literally. He weighs about 25, 30 pounds more than I to pick him up. I got him over my shoulder. I, our stairs, it's an 1870 row house. The stairs are like a ladder. Get him down. I got him outside. It was a very cold, drizzly, bleak day. Got him on the steps. He's like, I'm so cold. And he was just like humped over. They, they come up like they're dressed like for a walk on the moon with all this gear. The guy puts the, with an extender, like the oximeter, his, he puts it on his finger, takes it off and looks at it and goes, oh, wow. Oh man, yeah, he's in bad shape. I'm like, yes, he needs to get to the hospital. He said, uh, we don't know about that, sir. Uh, I got to make some calls. He makes a call. It's the same nurse that I had been on the phone with before. I, Mark says, I'm so cold. Can I, can you, I said, I'll get you back. I get him back in the house. I, I you know, I get him, you, you find the strength to do these things. I get him out of the sofa. He's on the sofa, laying there on the sofa, dying. I mean, at death's door and I'm out front while the ambulance driver is talking to the same nurse, to the same nurse. She's asking the same questions. And I'm in the background. I'm on the, cause he wouldn't come near me. I'm on speaker. I'm like, yes, he was tested. Yes, he has COVID. Yes. He's on the board of the hospital. Please take him to the hospital. He's on the hospital board. I've called the hospital. His doctors called the hospital. They're ready for him. Please take him. And the guy says, all right, we're going to take him to the hospital. But we'll decide. I mean, I don't know why I was treated like I was some, he goes, we'll decide what hospital he goes to. You don't make that decision, like pointing the finger at me. Like, and I'm like, granted, he was afraid because I had COVID, but it was, it was just very bizarre. I said, okay, okay, can, I, can, you, can you take him to the hospital? And he says, 
oh, we're not taking him to the hospital. There's another ambulance coming. They'll take him to the hospital. I'm like, well, when are, when are they going to be here? He goes, I don't know, but they'll be here. So another 10, 15 minutes goes by while my husband is gasping like a fish out of water for death. I, I mean, for, for air. I mean, with, with death at any second, um, an ambulance pulls up. They get out. The two that are in that ambulance walk over to the other two and stand there and talk for about 10 or 15 minutes. And I'm, I'm like, don't, I, I'm just standing there, you know, please, God, please take him, please. He's, he's dying. Finally, the one walks up and he goes, go get him, put him in that ambulance. And I'm like, are they go, hey, you do it. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay, I, whatever. So I run over and I grab him. I'm like, you know, you know, we've got to, we've got to try to get there. You're going to have to help me. I can't carry you all the way. We go down the steep stairs. We get out in the street and I'm dragging him literally. And he's like this. And I open the door to the ambulance and I've got to get him up in. And I'm like, I'm going to have to lift you now, Mark. And, and, and I, I get out there. I, I lift and I push him and he gets in and he falls over onto like the gurney, you know, like the gurney. and I go to get in. Cause I want to kiss him goodbye. I may never see him. And I go to get in and the guy's like, you don't get in there. Close the door. And I just was like, I love you. And I close, you know, close the door. And they still stand and talk. He needs oxygen. And I'm like, please, please, can't you take him, please? You know, finally they go and get in. They, I think they are suited up. I know I, they get in and they, no siren, nothing. They drive away. The hospital calls me. It's now after 4 p.m. Keep in mind, I dialed 911 at 1.20 in the afternoon that this man was at death's door at 1.20, 4 p.m., he arrives at the hospital. And they're like, we got him on oxygen. We're trying to stabilize him. And then a month of hell began. <laughs> Sorry, it's hard for me to talk about this. I appreciate you taking a moment to share your story because it's oh. not what happened to your husband and to you and your family. It's not okay. No, it, it was it's early not on. okay. It's Even though it's early on, I mean... There has to be a tenderness, thoughtfulness when you're caring for sick, no matter yeah, I, what, it doesn't matter who you are, what, what sexuality, nothing. It doesn't matter. There has to be a human respect and sense of urgency, a I, sense I, of urgency that needed yeah. to happen in that moment for you and for your husband. And I, this is a terrible story. Oh. It is. I'm so sad that this happened to you and your husband. Um, how is he doing today? Fabulous. <laughs> hey, fabulous. Okay. We he's, need some happiness here. <laughs> he's, he's, he, he, okay. Do you want to hear every out of time or do you want to hear what happened once he was in the ICU? Because that was a struggle as well. Yes. We want to so, know. First day I said, is he stable? Cause I saw Amy Klobuchar on CNN and she said her husband was in the hospital. I got him on oxygen. He's stabilized. He's doing better. So I'm like, okay, he's stable. That was Tuesday. Wednesday. Is he stable? Yeah, he's stable. Thursday, my birthday, I got a call from the palliative care doctor at the hospital who was, oh, happy birthday. I mean, it's like, I'm like, yeah, I'm alone in this house pacing back and forth. And she asked me uh, whether it was okay to put him on a ventilator. And I'm like, well, of course, should they take extreme measures to keep him alive? He is 71. And I'm like, yeah, no, I know. But yeah, take extreme measures. So I agree to all this. Then she says, you know, I told him that he may go on a ventilator. And he said, yes, he understands. And I told him that there was a very good chance that he wouldn't be coming off of the ventilator. And she said, and he said he knew that. And I said, you know, it's, I'm, I'm dying <laughs> inside. 
And, you know, I, I like, I thought he was stable. And she said, well, he's stable, but it's not good. And Friday they called me and they said they put him on the ventilator and it went well. He was able to get on. It's not easy putting people, intubating them. And, and it went okay. He was on the ventilator. Saturday, I kept calling to get an update. I was getting nothing. I was getting no updates, nothing. And I would call because, you know, the ICU was packed. They had COVID patients now and they were freaking out. I called his doctor. Finally, she answered and she said, yeah, well, you know what? He's 71 and he's on a ventilator and he's going downhill. And when they go downhill on COVID, it's real fast. So I'm just going to tell you, the call's going to come and it's going to come at any time now. So you just better be ready because it's coming. And I hung up that phone. Oh my God. And I called my sister and I stayed on the phone with her for about three hours because I didn't want to be alone. When I got the call, I somehow, I just didn't want to be alone in this house when that call came because, you know, it was cold. It was bleak. No, I couldn't be with, no, I couldn't be there. I couldn't be with him. I, I, I couldn't see him and we stayed. And then I called my two friends who also had COVID. And I said, he has acute respiratory failure. They say the call's gonna come in any minute. And my beloved friend who you know, uh, Peggy. Yeah. She said, I'm coming. You know, she had COVID too. And she came and we sat on the front steps of my house, you know, a good four or five feet apart and waited for the call. And that night it didn't come. And the next day they said it probably, you know, it wasn't good and it didn't come. And then I went into save Mark's life mode and I researched and I read and I did everything I could. And my beloved friend, Rafi, who was an acute care lung doctor in Cleveland would join in the conference calls with me, with his care team. And I said, you've got him on propofol the Michael Jackson drug that lowers the blood pressure. They're like, yeah. So what are you doing to raise his blood pressure? Well, we're giving him epinephrine and that destroys the kidneys. Well, it can, and he's going into kidney failure. Well, he's getting there. Take him off propofol, put him on ketamine, put him on another sedative, please, please do that. Then you won't have to destroy his kidneys. Well, okay. They tell me, okay. So I call, how's it going? Well, we're weaning him off of propofol and we're getting him on ketamine. I'm like, okay, thank you, God. Thank you. That'll be so much better. And is he on his stomach? Because I've been reading that they do much better if they're on their stomach. No, he's on his back. Can you, can you please put him on his stomach? Uh, yeah, sure. We'll do that. Okay. So the following morning I have my conference call. I said, so how is he doing on the ketamine? Oh, he's on propofol. Yeah. We put him back on propofol. I'm like, but he was supposed to be on ketamine. So 14 days as his creatinine level, which is a sign of kidney failure, is getting higher and higher and higher. And I am pleading for changes in his care. I'm not a doctor. I have doc I guidance from doctors. So I, you know, and I'm a researcher by trade. And so I was, you know, asking for little things, changes to be made. Some were made, thank God. 
the last day, Saturday, he'd been on the ventilator 12 days now. I, I talked to the physician assistant who was in charge of the, that ICU, and she said he'll never breathe again on his own. Yeah. He's too weak. He will never breathe again. And we can trach, we can, we're going to have to do a trach. And, I, and Rafi said, was on that conference call, he's the doctor. He said, I, can't you lower his oxygen level? And I know I, I kept asking them, they lower their, the, the, the strength of the ventilator to see if their own mechanism, their breathing mechanism kicks in so that they are self-sufficient. It's a test, they do it. She said, no, he's too weak, we can't do that. He said, you know what? From what I'm hearing about his vitals, I think you could do it. And she got really huffy. And she's like, okay, you know what? Uh, if, if you think you know better, doctor, uh, if you want, you know, but this is what I, I'm in charge here. And I don't think he can breathe again. I don't think he's ever going to breathe again on his own. And I think she's going on and on. And I'm party to this conference call. It's my, it's my, the love of my life, whose, whose life is hanging in the balance. And he's like, I just, okay. And, and Rafi is so smooth and such a gentleman. And he was like, all right, no, no, I don't mean to step on your toes. Of course, of course. I just, I was just thinking, you know, from my experience, I, I would think that you could run one of those tests. And she's like, yeah, no, he, he really is strong enough. Anyway, we hang up the phone. I say, Peggy's here with me again this day, because this was another critical day, because I was getting bad news. And I said, I should let him go because I'm being selfish. I, I should tell him to turn it off. And uh, she said, no, he's going to make it. She kept saying, he's going to make it. And I'm like, no, I'm being selfish. I I'm just prolonging his suffering. I should let him go. And a couple hours went by, but a few hours. And then that night, I was here alone, sitting here, and Rafi called. And he said, you know what? I, I called the ICU back on my own and to talk with the physician assistant. And she said, after she got off the phone, she did run that test and he passed it with flying colors. <laughs> oh my God. He did. And that was Saturday night and he came off the ventilator on Tuesday. And sorry. No, don't be The sorry. hardest part of my memoir was writing that episode because those days were the darkest days of my life. Days of, of loneliness and fear and desperation and and you know, calling and saying his feet always get cold. I, I'm so worried. Can, is his, are, can you put stockings on his feet? Because <laughs> you, mm -hmm. you can't be there to see them. And, you know, I don't know. But Here. he made it. Mm -hmm. I nursed him back to health. He's back at work. And he has zero, zero symptoms, zero lingering effects of COVID. He is 100%. I, I'm so glad. I'm so glad that he is okay and i'm so glad that you made it through that yeah. horrific time you know during covid especially the beginning it was such so um so much uncertainty you know um yeah. and and i connect with you very deeply on that story my mother had a heart attack and and um was in icu for um a month so oh, and, and she's doing she's doing very well today but was this during COVID as well? It's the same exact time oh. that your husband is. I was so, like, I, I connect with you. So I understand the fear of being be at there. home. You can't be uh -huh. there. And I understand the fear and I understand the not sleeping and, and all of it. And I think so many of our listeners will connect with this story because it was a real time for so many of us when we yeah. couldn't be with our loved ones. Um, and just really quickly, I just want to share with you um, that 
we bought lunch for the whole floor, you know, all the nurses and doctors, my family, my husband, my daughter and I, we did. And I'll, and I'll never forget um, dropping it off and having to put everything like on this park bench. Right. Uh It was a massive amount of food. Yeah. And then had to go back into the car and sit and wait to watch the nurse come out with a roller, you know, like a, like a roller thing, load up all the food and just kind of waving while we sat in our car so far removed. Yeah. And, and then of course we sobbed the whole way home. Cause it's like, that's the, that's the best we can do right now. Yeah. So you yeah. did the best that you could do and you did a damn good job and I'm yeah. proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank <laughs> oh you. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's Stephen, the story is just um, incredible. And the fact that you were able to there, be there and nurse him back to health. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, it, it really brings up something that's so important as we're in June, Pride Month, right? Really yeah. thinking of everything that passed and laws that have passed to continue. And, and we all know that there's still a long way to go for yeah. equality and equal rights. But you know, do you feel, would you have even had the opportunity to coach him and nurse him back to life if you guys weren't married? Well, the ball would have been in his mother's court at his sister's court. I would have had no, uh, I would have had no legal standing, you know, and, and if they, if they wanted, you know, me out of the picture, I could have been out of the picture. I mean, I don't know whether they would do that. I doubt that they would, but you never know in those situations. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's marriage is, is a is a binding contract that gives you a great deal of, of leeway and privilege regarding your spouse. And thank God we were married and thank God that he 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 pulled through. I mean, in, in those dark, 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 dark days, I, I know it sounds fatalistic, but I really was like, I, will I be able to go on? I mean, he's been my life now for 23 years. He's, he's my everything. And and I just thought. You know, I know you, you, you go on, but in those moments, I just thought, geez, what will I do? I, I closed off that side of the house, his office, our bedroom. I slept in the guest room. I wouldn't go into the bedroom. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't go there while he was in the hospital. And, and I think to COVID, it, it probably drove some people apart, but with us, it made us even closer. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, there's no question. There's real love there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I survived that. And, you know, and we're so lucky to have been able to have dinner with you guys when you were here. And if you never told the story, I would have never known that he was on his deathbed. You know, yeah. I mean, he looks great. You're both look healthier and, and happier than ever. And it's just, yeah. we're so thankful that it, you know, that the story ended that way. It ended well, you know, um, Stephen, as we close um, the show today, we'd love, and I think our listeners would love to know, what does pride mean to you? Pride means acceptance and the ability to live your life as you choose and openly. Hmm. To be yourself and to be able to be yourself without any guilt or punishment or ramifications of any kind as, as any American hopes to or wants to, and in most cases is able to, I hope. That's really beautiful. And, and I encourage 
our listeners to celebrate pride every day. It's not just a month. You know, we spotlight it this month, but it is an every day effort to celebrate and recognize the differences and the culture and the beauty in each and every one of us. So I thank you today for your honesty and for your vulnerability and for your story, Stephen. (laughs) Oh, there are so many more. We're going to be, I don't think the one memoir. (laughs) Yeah, she's. Bridget, we're we're definitely going to see you in DC or Miami, but I don't think uh, you're going to have to have multiple series to your memoir because I don't think one will c- captures everything. No. Oh wow! Well, maybe, yeah. maybe. We'll Netflix, see. if you're listening, Stephen needs a series. <laughs> I need a publisher. I need to binge watch this. <laughs> just saying, but we uh, we want to wish you just the best of health. And a lot of peace. And just thank you so much for taking the time to share your story on Served Up today. Cheers to you. Cheers to you. Thank you. Thank you both thank so you, much. Stephen. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers!